Chapter 17 of Prejudices, First Series. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Prejudices, First Series, by H. L. Mencken. George Jean Nathan. One thinks of Gordon Craig not as a jester, but as a very serious and even solemn fellow. For a dozen years past, all the more sober dramatic critics of America have approached him with the utmost politeness, and to the gushing old maids and auto-intoxicated professors of the Drama League of America, he has stood for the last word in theatrical aestheticism. Moreover, a good deal of this veneration has been deserved, for Craig has done excellent work in the theatre, and is a man of much force and ingenuity, and no little originality. Nevertheless, there must be some flavour of low barroom wit in him, some echo of Sir Toby Belch and the captain of Kirpenick, for a year or so ago he shook up his admirers with a joke most foul. Need I say that I refer to the notorious Nathan affair? Imagine the scene. The campus archers and Walkleys in ponderous conclave, perhaps preparing their monthly cablegram of devotion to Metterlink. Arrives now a messenger with dreadful news. Gordon Craig, from his far-off Italian retreat, has issued a bull praising Nathan. Which Nathan? George Jean, of course. What? The smart-set Scaramouche? The ribald fellow? The raffish mocker with his praise of Florence Ziegfeld? His naughty enthusiasm for pretty legs? His contumacious scoffing at Brio, Belasco, Augustus Thomas, Mrs. Fisk? Aye, even so. And what has Craig to say of him? In brief, that he is the only American dramatic critic worth reading, that he knows far more about the theatre than all the honorary pallbearers of criticism rolled together, that he is immeasurably the superior in learning, in sense, in shrewdness, in candor, in plausibility, in skill at writing, of... But names do not matter. Craig, in fact, did not bother to rehearse them. He simply made a clean sweep of the board, and then deftly placed the somewhat disconcerted Nathan in the center of the vacant space. It was a sad day for the honest donkeys who, for half a decade, had been laboriously establishing Craig's authority in America, but it was a glad day for Knopf, the publisher. Knopf, at the moment, had just issued Nathan's The Popular Theatre. At once, he rushed to a job printer in 8th Avenue, ordered 100,000 copies of the Craig Encomium, and flooded the country with them. The result was amusing, and typical of the Republic. Nathan's previous books, when praised at all, had been praised faintly and with reservations. The fellow, it appeared, was too spoofish. He lacked the sobriety and dignity necessary to a true critic. He was entertaining, but not to be taken seriously. But now, with foreign backing, and particularly English backing, he suddenly began to acquire merit, and even a certain vague solemnity. And the popular theatre, 
was reviewed more lavishly and more favorably than I have ever seen any other theater book reviewed before or since. The phenomenon, as I say, was typical. The childish mass of superstitions passing for civilized opinion in America was turned inside out overnight by one authoritative foreign voice. I have myself been a figure in the same familiar process. All of my books, up to the American language, were, in the main, hostilely noticed. A book of prefaces, in particular, was manhandled by the orthodox reviewers. Then, just before the American language was issued, the Mercure de France printed an article commending a book of prefaces in high astounding terms. The consequence was that the American language, a far inferior work, was suddenly discovered to be full of merit, and critics of the utmost respectability, who had ignored all my former books, printed extremely friendly reviews of it. But to return to Nathan. What deceived the drama leaguers and other such imposing popinjays for so long, causing them to mistake him for a mere sublimated Alan Dale, was his refusal to take imbecilities seriously his easy casualness and avoidance of pedagogics, his frank delight in the theater as a show-shop, above all, his bellicose iconoclasm and devastating wit. What Craig, an intelligent man, discerned underneath was his extraordinary capacity for differentiating between sham and reality, his Catholic freedom from formulae and prejudice, his astonishing acquaintance with the literature of the practical theater, his firm grounding in rational aesthetic theory, above all, his capacity for making the thing he writes of interesting, his uncommon craftsmanship. This craftsmanship had already got him a large audience. He had been for half a dozen years, indeed, one of the most widely read of American dramatic critics, but the traditional delusion that sagacity and dullness are somehow identical had obscured the hard and accurate thinking that made the show. What was so amusing seemed necessarily superficial. It remained for Craig to show that this appearance of superficiality was only an appearance, that the Nathan criticism was well-planned and soundly articulated, that at the heart of it, there was a sound theory of the theater and of the literature of the theater no less. And what was that theory? You will find it nowhere put into a ready formula, but the outlines of it must surely be familiar to anyone who has read another book on the theater, the popular theater, and Mr. George Jean Nathan Presents. In brief, it is the doctrine preached with so much ardor by Benedetto Croce and his disciple, Dr. J. E. Springarn, and by them borrowed from Goethe and Carlyle. The doctrine to wit that every work of art is, at bottom, unique, and that it is the business of the critic not to label it and pigeonhole it, but to seek for its inner intent and content, and to value it according as that intent is carried out, and that content is valid and worthwhile. This is the precise opposite of the academic critical attitude. 
The professor is nothing if not a maker of card indexes. He must classify or be damned. His masterpiece is the dictum that it is excellent, but it is not a play. Nathan has a far more intelligent and hospitable eye. His criterion, elastic and undefined, is inimical only to the hollow, the meretricious, the fraudulent. It bars out the play of flabby and artificial sentiment. It bars out the cheap melodrama, however gaudily set forth. It bars out the moony mush of the bad imitators of Ibsen and Matterlink. It bars out all mere claptrap and sensation-monging. But it lets in every play, however conceived or designed, that contains an intelligible idea well worked out. It lets in every play by a dramatist who is ingenious and original and genuinely amusing. And it lets in every other sort of theatrical spectacle that has an honest aim and achieves that aim passably and is presented frankly for what it is. Bear this theory in mind, and you have a clear explanation of Nathan's actual performances. First, his merciless lampooning of the trade goods of Broadway, and the pifflings of the drama league geniuses, and secondly, his ardent championing of such widely diverse men as Avery Hopwood, Florence Ziegfeld, Ludwig Thoma, Lord Dunsany, Sasha Gitry, Lothar Schmidt, Ferenz Molnar, Roberto Bracco, and Gerhard Hauptmann, all of whom have one thing in common. They are intelligent and full of ideas and know their trade. In Europe, of course, there are many more such men than in America, and some of the least of them are almost as good as our best. That is why Nathan is forever announcing them and advocating the presentation of their works, not because he favors foreignness for its own sake, but because it is so often accompanied by sound achievement and by stimulating example to our own artists. And that is why, when he tackles the maudlin flubdub of the Broadway dons, he does it with the weapons of comedy and even of farce. Does an Augustus Thomas rise up with his corn-doctor magic and Sunday school platitudes, proving heavily that love is mightier than the sword, that a pure heart will baffle the electric chair, that the eye is quicker than the hand? Then Nathan proceeds against him with a slapstick and makes excellent practice upon his pantaloons. Does a Belasco, thumb on forelock, posture before the yeomanry as a great artist, the evidence being a large chromo of a child's restaurant, and a studio like a Madison Avenue antique shop? Then Nathan flings a laugh at him and puts him in his place. And does some fat rhinoceros of an actress, unearthing a smutty play by a corn-fed racine, loose its banal obscenities upon the vulgar in the name of sex hygiene? presuming thus to teach a great lesson and to break the conspiracy of silence and carry on the noble work of Brio and company, and so save impatient flappers from the Moloch's sacrifice of the altar. Does such a bumptious and preposterous baggage 
fill the newspapers with her pish-posh and the largest theater in Manhattan with eager dunderheads. Then the ribald Jean has at her with a flour sack filled with the pollen of the Ambrosia Artemisia folia, driving her from the scene to the tune of her own unearthly sneezing. Necessarily, he has to lay on with frequency. For one honest play, honestly produced, and honestly played, Broadway sees two dozen that are simply so much green goods. To devote serious exposition to the badness of such stuff would be to descend to the donkeyish futility of William Winter. Sometimes, indeed, even ridicule is not enough. There must be a briefer and more dramatic display of the essential banality. Well, then, why not recreate it in the manner of Croce, but touching up a line here, a color there? The result is burlesque, but burlesque that is the most searching and illuminating sort of criticism. Who will forget Nathan's demonstration that a platitudinous play by Thomas would be better if played backward? A superb bravura piece, enormously beyond the talents of any other American writer on the theater, it smashed the Thomas legend with one stroke. In the little volume called Bottoms Up, you will find many other such annihilating waggeries. Nathan does not denounce melodrama with a black cap upon his head, painfully demonstrating its inferiority to the drama of Ibsen, Scribe, and Euripides. He simply sits down and writes a little melodrama so extravagantly ludicrous that the whole genus collapses. And he does not prove in four columns of a Sunday paper that French plays done into American are spoiled, he simply shows the spoiling in six lines. This method, of course, makes for broken heads. It outrages the feelings of tender theatrical mountebanks. It provokes reprisals more or less furtive and behind the door. The theater in America, as in most other countries, is operated chiefly by bounders. Men so constantly associated with actors tend to take on the qualities of the actor, his idiotic vanity, his Herculean stupidity, his chronic underrating of his betters. The miasma spreads to dramatists and dramatic critics. The former drift into charlatanry, and the latter into a cowardly and disgusting dishonesty. Amid such scenes, a man of positive ideas, of civilized tastes, and of unshakable integrity, is a stranger, and he must face all the hostility that the lower orders of men display to strangers. There is, so far as I know, no tripe-seller in Broadway who has not tried at one time or another to dispose of Nathan by attentat. He has been exposed to all the measures ordinarily effective against rebellious reviewers, and, resisting them, he has been treated to special treatment with infernal machines of novel and startling design. No writer for the theater has been harder beset, and none has been less incommoded by the onslaught. What is more, he has never made the slightest effort to capitalize this drum-fire, the invariable device of lesser men. So far as I am aware, 
and I have been in close association with him for ten years, it has had not the slightest effect upon him whatsoever. A thoroughgoing skeptic, with no trace in him of the messianic delusion, he has avoided timorousness on the one hand and indignation on the other. No man could be less a public martyr of the Metcalfe type. It would probably amuse him vastly to hear it argued that his unbreakable independence and often somewhat high and mighty sniffishness has been of any public usefulness. I sometimes wonder what keeps such a man in the theatre, breathing bad air nightly, gaping at prancing imbeciles, sitting cheek by jowl with cads. Perhaps there is, at bottom, a secret romanticism, a lingering residuum of a boyish delight in pasteboard and spangles, gaudy colors and soothing sounds, preposterous heroes and appetizing wenches. But more likely, it is a sense of humor, the zest of a man to whom life is a spectacle that never grows dull, a show infinitely surprising, amusing, buffoonish, vulgar, obscene. The theater, when all is said and done, is not life in miniature, but life enormously magnified, life hideously exaggerated. Its emotions are ten times as powerful as those of reality. Its ideas are twenty times as idiotic as those of real men. Its lights and colors and sounds are forty times as blinding and deafening as those of nature. Its people are grotesque burlesques of everyone we know. Here is diversion for a cynic. And here, it may be, is the explanation of Nathan's fidelity. Whatever the cause of his enchantment, it seems to be lasting. To a man so fertile in ideas and so facile in putting them into words, there is a constant temptation to make experiments, to plunge into strange waters, to seek self-expression in ever-widening circles. And yet, at the brink of forty years, Nathan remains faithful to the theater. Of his half-dozen books, only one does not deal with it, and that one is a very small one. In four or five years he has scarcely written of aught else. I doubt that anything properly describable as enthusiasm is at the bottom of this assiduity. Perhaps the right word is curiosity. He is interested mainly not in the staple fare of the playhouse, but in what might be called its fancy goods in its endless stream of new men, its restless innovations, the radical overhauling that it has been undergoing in our time. I do not recall in any of his books or articles a single paragraph appraising the classics of the stage, or more than a brief note or two on their interpretation. His attention is always turned in a quite opposite direction, he is intensely interested in novelty of whatever sort, if it be only free from sham. Such experimentalists as Max Reinhardt, George Bernard Shaw, Sasha Gitry, and the daring nobodies of the Grand Guignol, such divergent originals as Dunsany, Ziegfeld, George M. Cohan, and Schnitzler, have enlisted his eager partisanship. 
he saw something new to our theater in the farces of Hopwood before anyone else saw it. He was quick to welcome the novel points of view of Eleanor Gates and Claire Cummer. He at once rescued what was sound in the little theater movement from what was mere attitudinizing and pseudo-intellectuality. In the view of Broadway, an exigent and even malignant fellow, wielding a pen dipped in aqua fortis, he is actually amiable to the last degree, and constantly announces pearls in the fodder of the swine. Is the new play in 42nd Street a serious work of art, as the press agents and the newspaper reviewers say? Then so are your grandmother's false teeth. Is Metterlink a great thinker? Then so is Dr. Frank Crane. Is Belasco a profound artist? Then so is the man who designs the ceilings of hotel dining rooms. But let us not weep too soon. In the play around the corner, there is a clever scene. Next door, amid sickening dullness, there are two buffoons who could be worse. One clouts the other with a blutwurst filled with mayonnaise. And a block away, there is a girl in the second row with a very charming twist of the vastus medialis. Let us sniff the roses and forget the thorns. What this attitude chiefly wars with, even above cheapness, meretriciousness, and banality, is the fatuous effort to turn the theater, a place of amusement, into a sort of outhouse to the academic grove. The Matterlink brio barker complex. No critic in America, and none in England save perhaps Walkley, has combated this movement more vigorously than Nathan. He is under no illusion as to the functions and limitations of the stage. He knows, with Victor Hugo, that the best it can do, in the domain of ideas, is to turn thoughts into food for the crowd. And he knows that only the simplest and shakiest ideas may undergo that transformation. Coming upon the scene at the height of the Ibsen mania of half a generation ago, he ranged himself against its windy pretenses from the start. He saw at once the high merit of Ibsen as a dramatic craftsman, and welcomed him as a reformer of dramatic technique. But he also saw how platitudinous was the ideational content of his plays, and announced the fact in terms highly offensive to the Ibsenites. But the Ibsenites have vanished, and Nathan remains. He has survived, too, the brio hubbub. He has lived to preach the funeral sermon of the Belasco legend. He has himself sordid Matterlink and Granville Barker. He has done frightful execution upon many a poor mime. And meanwhile, breasting the murky tide of professorial buncombe, of solemn pontificating, of Richard Burtonism, Clayton Hamiltonism, and other such decaying forms of William Winterism, he has rescued dramatic criticism among us from its exile with theology, embalming, and obstetrics, and given it a place among what Nietzsche called the gay sciences, along with war, fiddle-playing, and laparotomy. He has made it amusing, stimulating, 
challenging, even at times a bit startling. And to the business, artfully concealed, he has brought a sound and thorough acquaintance with the heavy work of the pioneers Lessing, Schlegel, Hazlitt, Lewes et al., and an even wider acquaintance, lavishly displayed with every nook and corner of the current theatrical scene across the water. And to discharge this extraordinarily copious mass of information, he has hauled and battered the English language into new and often astounding forms. And when English has failed, he has helped it out with French, German, Italian, American, Swedish, Russian, Turkish, Latin, Sanskrit, and Old Church Slavic, and with algebraic symbols, chemical formulae, musical notation, and the signs of the zodiac. This manner, of course, is not without its perils. A man so inordinately articulate is bound to succumb now and then to the seductions of mere virtuosity. The average writer, and particularly the average critic of the drama, does well if he gets a single new and racy phrase into an essay. Nathan does well if he dilutes his inventions with enough commonplaces to enable the average reader to understand his discourse at all. He carries the avoidance of the cliché to the length of an idée fixe. It would be difficult in all his books to find a dozen of the usual rubber stamps of criticism. I dare say it would kill him, or, at all events, bring him down with cholera morbus, to discover that he had called a play convincing, or found authority in the snorting of an English actor-manager. At best, this incessant flight from the obvious makes for a piquant and arresting style, a procession of fantastic and often highly pungent neologisms, in brief, for Nathanism. At worst, it becomes artificiality, pedantry, obscurity. I cite an example from an essay on Eleanor Gates's The Poor Little Rich Girl, prefaced to the printed play. As against the not unhallow symbolic strut and gasconade of such overpained pieces as, let us, for example, say, The Bluebird of Matterlink, so simple and unaffected a bit of stage writing as this, of school dramatic intrinsically the same, cajoles the more honest heart and satisfies more plausibly and fully those of us whose thumbs are ever being pulled professionally for a native stage less smeared with the snobberies of empty, albeit high-sounding, nomenclatures from overseas. Fancy that, Hedda! and in praise of a simple and unaffected bit of stage-writing. I denounced it at the time, circa 1916, and perhaps with some effect. At all events, I seem to notice a gradual disentanglement of the parts of speech. The old florid invention is still there. One encounters startling coinages in even the most casual of reviews. The thing still flashes and glitters. The tune is yet upon the E-string, but underneath I hear a more sober rhythm than of old. The fellow, in fact, takes on a sedater habit, both in style and in point of view. Without abandoning anything essential, 
without making the slightest concession to the orthodox opinion that he so magnificently disdains, he yet begins to yield to the middle years. The mere shocking of the stupid is no longer as charming as it used to be. What he now offers is rather more gemutlich. Sometimes it even verges upon the instructive. But I doubt that Nathan will ever become a professor, even if he enjoys the hideously prolonged senility of a William Winter. He will be full of surprises to the end. With his last gasp, he will make a phrase to flabbergast adult. End of chapter 17 Recording by Linda Johnson